I'm going to highlight just two things real quickly. Both have been mentioned, but I want to just kind of restate them. Uh, spaghetti dinner out in the hallway afterward. Go sign up. Um, yeah, period. Go set up. Uh, bring somebody with you. I mean, come on. It's a dinner. Uh, go eat. Um, we have a group of kids going to this life conference. The conference is incredible. Uh, and they will have an incredible time. It is actually life-changing. We love the fact that our kids are going. And you can make that uh, happen. So stop by there and sign up and bring someone along with you. Other thing is, uh, we mentioned the, the, the financial update. Uh, Sunday that coming up, that we next Sunday, that we have an update where we review the past year, look at the budget coming up. That's kind of all in step with our annual meeting and update, that kind of thing. I want to just give you a heads up that this year we're going to have an information night on Tuesday night, March the 8th. Our annual meeting update is usually on a Sunday. We're still going to do a number of things on the Sunday before. But on Tuesday night, the 8th, I want to invite you to be here. We're going to do an update. A number of things to talk about. The sale of the, the Wilson property, where that's at. And we want to talk about where the church goes next as far as coming out of COVID. And how we respond, what we do, some of those things. Uh, things that you'd be interested in. Things I'd love to have you engage, engage with us on. So make note of that for March the 8th. And we'll uh, have some fun together and um, mapping out some direction together. This morning, I want to talk specifically about what real faith looks like. And so we just finished a series. I'm not going to start one quite yet. And during the course of a year or whatever, I'll jot thoughts down and notes along the way of questions I hear, people I've talked to, things I'd like to talk about at some point in time. And this is one of those days where I want to talk about what real faith looks like. Through the years of doing ministry, I continue to hear from people comments and feelings about their faith, and usually they're not healthy ones. They're not great ones. It's an odd thing that happens along the way. We come to Jesus, we place our faith in him, and it seems like we have this great moment of, of a surge of faith. That's a good thing. But one of the things that happens through time is I hear so many people begin to get a little clouded in their thinking about what real faith looks like. I'll hear comments from people that will be going through a difficult time, facing some difficult moment. And they're thinking like this, oh, my faith is so weak. If only my faith was stronger. If I had a stronger faith, I could do this or I could do that. Or I, I wouldn't feel like I felt right now or like I feel right now. If only my faith were stronger. Those kind of statements. Worse yet... Uh, sometimes we question our own faith, but worse yet, we begin to question other people's faith. And that kind of comment goes like this. I'm looking, you're looking at someone else's life and say, well, if they had more faith, and we begin to make judgments about their faith. And then there are some of the folks that say, you know, I'm trying to live out my faith, but it sure is hard. I'm trying to live out my faith, but it leaves me just weary. It's so wearisome. Uh, it leaves me drained, trying to get it right, trying to do the right thing, and it just never seems like I can quite get it right. Those kind of statements about faith. As well, there are probably some who are watching, listening in here this morning who you're not yet a follower of Christ. And perhaps what you've done is you've seen some other Christians, and maybe you have some reservations about this idea of following Jesus because you see people who are following Jesus, and sometimes it looks like their faith is a lot of work. You know, like they're really struggling at this thing and maybe I don't want that struggle. Or perhaps you've seen some people who are faith people and you have this feeling like it doesn't seem quite real, you know, like a painted on faith. And you find yourself asking the question, I wonder what it's really like in their life. You know, it seems kind of fakish the way they're presenting themselves. What's, a real, what's real faith look like in their lives? All those things together. I want to talk this morning about what real faith looks like, what it acts like, what it, what it's a, how it works in our lives today. Now, admittedly, it's getting harder and harder today in the world in which we live to determine what's real and what's not real, right? The television, the internet, man, it's just, you can't tell what's real or what's fake. It's all out there. It used to be that a picture is worth a thousand words, but that was, of course, before Photoshop. And so now with Photoshop, a picture doesn't necessarily tell you anything because it can be created. Um, someone makes a picture look real when it may not be real. Uh, on television, some of the most popular shows right now on television are reality shows. Uh, people got tired of the scripted, the scripted dramas or the sitcoms, those things. And so reality TV came in with gangbusters. There's shows on right now like the Housewives, Real Housewives of Atlanta, of New York City, of Orange County, Below Deck, which is a real life you know, reality TV about uh, life on these luxury yachts, those kind of things. And they look pretty real. But if you ever watched them, and I've watched numbers of them, if you ever watched them, you, you begin to think to yourself at times, it looks real, 
But it sure makes me wonder what the producers are doing behind the scene because you watch some of these shows and they have so many confrontations week after week after week. It's like nobody has this, these many issues. And maybe these people do have that many issues. Maybe that's why they're on the show because they have so many issues. But you look at this, you go, this can't be real after week after week. So you wonder what's behind that. So I'm going to give you some news this morning that for some of you will devastate your world. Everything on TV is not real. I know, I know. I know for some of you, you're beside yourself. But how about this one? And everything on the internet is not real. Or some of you that just rocked your world. Because we live in an age today where anyone who has access to a computer can go on that computer, can put anything out there they want, can do it with a good, some pictures that are Photoshopped, and it looks absolutely real. So we have, tar- we have a hard time, really, admittedly, figuring out what is real, what's not. You get a, 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 a news flash. And you can't believe it. You have to back, go and look and see if you can cross-reference it, all of those things. So it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me that when it comes to figuring out what faith looks like, we might struggle with that as well. What does real faith actually look like? And I will say, as I've, I've mentioned already some of the statements from Christians, apparently we have some odd, uh, kind of some odd mixture of feelings of what real faith looks like. So I want to ju- address that this morning. There's a character in the pages of scripture that jumps off of the pages. His name is Peter. And I, I want to take a look at Peter this morning and look at some moments in his life. And from his life, we'll get a good picture of what real faith looks like. Peter embodies a person who lives out real faith. I think a faith that we can relate to. Now, Simon Peter, probably one of the first and certainly one of the most famous followers of Jesus Christ. Peter lived out his real life faith. And we know that he had faith by statements that Jesus made. One profound moment where Peter and Jesus are having a conversation. And Jesus says to Peter, so Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, man, you're the Messiah. That's who you are. You're the sent one from God. And if you recall the story, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, man, you are blessed. You are blessed because you didn't come up with that on your own. You're blessed because my father gave that to you. I got, I got news for you. If you're getting word directly from the father that you're answering Jesus' key question accurately when no one else knows the answer, you've got faith. And so we've had this established that Peter is a person of faith. So this morning, I want to look at a number of different moments in Peter's life And from his life and from his example, I want to define for us what real faith looks like. Now, admittedly, there's probably a hundred different facets of faith we could look at. I'm going to boil it down to just a couple. What real faith looks like. Let's jump into the first one. So real faith always includes moments of feeling unworthy when you're actually walking with God. Make sure you catch that. Real faith includes moments of feeling unworthy of God's presence in your life. Now, that's got to go against what some of you might think, because some of us think, well, I mean, when I come to faith in God, I'm always going to have this sense of being close and this sense of worthiness. But in fact, if we're truthful about it, real faith has moments of not feeling worthy to be walking with God. Peter has an incredible moment with Jesus very early on when Jesus first called Peter to follow him. Here's the background. Jesus is teaching one day. He taught every day. He'd, go, he, he'd just walk outside, and the people would gather around, and he'd begin to talk to them about life and about th- uh, the things of life that matter. And he's on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, and once again, the crowds are creeping in. And we've talked about this. So the, the people followed Jesus, especially around the Sea of Galilee. That was kind of his center of operation. And, of course, if you've got a body of fresh water... In the middle of the Middle East, life is going to find itself around that. So you had fresh water and you had fish. So life happened every day around the sea, uh, the, the, the shores of that Sea of Galilee. Jesus is out one day. He's walking. He's talking. He's preaching. And the people gather in. And, of course, more and more crowds are coming in. And they're kind of gathering around him. And now Jesus is right up against the edge of the water. And he looks. And there are two boats. Two boats that have been beached there and some fishermen that are cleaning their nets. So Jesus actually goes over and he steps into one of the boats. And the boats he steps into happens to be Peter's boat. Peter owns that boat. He gets into the boat and he says to Peter, hey, push me out a little ways from shore. So Peter hops in the boat. They push the boat out a little bit. It's perfect. Jesus now is in the boat just a few feet from shore. He can sit down and he can preach and he can teach. Everyone can hear. You know what that's like, right? You've been to the lake and you hear someone out on the lake a mile away. You hear everything they say. Because, of course, it's a hard surface. It projects well. So it's a perfect setting. Jesus sits in the boat, talks and preaches and teaches till he's all done. He's done with his teaching. And he looks at Peter and he says, hey, as long as we're in the boat, 
let's go fishing. Why don't you put out in the deep end and we'll go fishing. Put your net down. Peter goes, fishing? So Jesus, I fish for a living. And we were out all night last night when you're supposed to catch fish. You catch fish at night. We're out all night last night and we catch no fish. You who don't fish want to go fishing in the middle of the day thinking we're going to catch fish. We don't catch fish in the middle of the day, but because you asked, we'll go fishing. So they go out. You know the story, many of you. He throws his net over. He goes to pull it up. It's so full, they can't get it in the boat. It's so full, the net begins to break, begins to rip. So they yell for their partners on the shore, hey, bring the other boat out. So they jump in, they come out, and the story says that both boats are so full of fish that both of them are just about to sink. I mean, this is a great story. And I'd love to be Jesus. I'd love to see his face in that moment. One, I would love to be him. I'd love to do those kinds of things for people. The things where they can't, they think it can't possibly happen and he makes it happen. But I also just like to see his face where he goes, let's go fishing. Peter goes, you gotta be kidding me. And he just, no, I wanna go fishing. Seriously? Seriously, fish. Just throw your net over. Let's see what happens. Fine. And all of a sudden, it's so full, it's breaking, it's going to sink the boat. I can see Peter saying, Jesus, are you going to help? Help. I I just filled your net full of fish. (laughs) You do the rest. With a smile on his face. But here's the piece of the story, which is actually kind of gripping if you think about it. It's in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. So now it's all over. Both boats come in full of fish. And when Simon Peter saw this... He fell at Jesus' knees and he said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. So what's interesting is that in the moment of this incredible miracle, Peter feels like I cannot be near this guy. See, if you believe that real faith will always leave you feeling close to God and feeling a sense of being worthy, think again. Peter sees this miracle. Peter realizes that he's standing beside the guy who has the ability to say, just put your net out and watch what happens. And it's so full of fish, it begins to sink their boat. And in that moment, Peter realizes who Jesus is, or at least the power that Jesus has. And his thought is, I cannot be here. I can't be next to this guy. I can't be with him. I can't be a person of faith. I mean, I am so unworthy to be with him. Here he says, let's go fishing, and I'm doubting him. How can I even walk with Jesus? If you have ever felt unworthy because of what you have determined to be your lack of faith, welcome to the club of followers of Jesus. Moses felt that way. Isaiah felt that way. Mary felt that way. Peter feels that way. All of the great people of faith have had moments of feeling that way. He's God and he's holy. I'm not God. I am not holy. Man, I'm a wreck. I mean, who am I? How dare I stand next to God? Now, as a person who has struggled in his life with the feelings of insecurity, let me say this to you. Do not try to feel worthy of God's presence. Just enjoy the invitation of God for you to be in his presence, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you have or don't have. Just enjoy the invitation. You see, when you invite Jesus Christ into your life, he makes us worthy, even though at times we still don't feel worthy. He takes care of that. Enjoy God's invitation into a relationship with him. If you're going to have a a life of faith, you're going to have times of feeling unworthy. And that does not mean that you don't have faith. People of real faith will have moments where they say, I I can't be with him because he's God. Let me give you a second thing about real faith. Real faith still has doubts. A person of real faith can have real faith and still have doubts. In fact, real faith can experience doubt even at some of life's greatest moments of triumph. 
Think about that. You can be at one of the greatest moments of success in your life with God, spiritual success, really hitting it out of the park, and still have moments of doubt. It happened to Peter in one of what, the, for, as a kid, one of my favorite Bible stories. Most kids love this story from the Bible about Jesus. Peter in a storm, Jesus in a storm, and the story is basically this. Peter, again, is in a boat. It's stormy out. It's three in the morning. They think they're going to die, and here comes Jesus walking on the water. Not walking through the water, walking on the water. And of course, you know the story. The disciples are alarmed. They think they're seeing a ghost because they've never seen anybody walk on water. Don't know if you have or not, but if you have, talk to me later. They, you know, they're, they're alarmed, and so they don't know what is going on. They think it's a ghost, scared to death. And yet, Peter, in just a moment, is going to walk on the water just like Jesus is walking on the water. Here's the story. Matthew chapter 14, verse 24. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. But Jesus spoke to them at once, don't be afraid, take courage, I'm here. And then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and he walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and he began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. So here's my question for you, starting place. Have you ever walked on water? I didn't think so, so you have nothing else to say about the story. I did once. I was water skiing. We are going very, very fast, and my skis hit a wave, and I came out of my skis. And my family said I walked really well on the water. I actually ran on the water for a good 50, 60 feet. Actually, it was more skidding on the water, but it had a, it had a walking on the water experience. So you haven't. I haven't. So let's just be honest here. Peter's already a step up on us. I don't care how much faith you think you have. Peter already trumps us because he actually walked on water. Now, what's interesting in this story, Peter's actually walking on top of the water, just like Jesus. Now, again, stop real quick. I like to think in color. I say that all the time, and I hope you do that because I can actually picture in my mind what it might look like walking on water when it's a glassy surface, you know, early morning, not a, not a wave to be seen. See, that I can picture. I don't quite picture what it's like walking on water in a storm. I mean, is Jesus going up and down with the waves because he's walking on top of them? Does he walk through them? Do they part for him? So I'm looking at this story too. I'm still trying to figure it out a little bit because something's odd here, but he's walking on the water. Peter wants to walk on the water as well. Jesus says, do it. Peter climbs out of the boat and he's actually walking on water. Peter is at the pinnacle of spiritual triumph. I mean, he's walking on top of the water like Jesus. And then it says in the story that he notices the wind and the waves, and he begins to sink. Now, what strikes me about that, he notices the wind and the waves. If you read the story, they've been fighting wind and waves for hours. So it's not like when he was getting off the edge of the boat, everything went calm. So he's getting out of the boat in the wind and the waves, and then he realizes wind and waves. I don't understand that. But real faith can be right in the middle of incredible success and still be overcome with doubt. What do you do when that happens in your life? What do you do when you're right in the pinnacle of spiritual success and the bottom falls out? Well, Peter did. Lord, help me. It's a real simple prayer, and it works. I'll suggest this to you, that when Peter says, Lord, help me, in a heartbeat, Peter got to the real issue, and that is, I need help. No time right then to blame, no right time at that point to try to dissect this thing. I just need help. And I would suggest to you, nothing will drain you faster than trying to fake your faith, than trying to pretend that you're brave, trying to fake bravery, trying to fake your emotions, trying to put up a false front. Don't try to fake the fact that you don't have doubts. Don't try to fake the fact that you don't have fear. Just admit them to God. There's the strength. Don't try to bluff your way through it. Just look at him and say, hey, I'm going to need help here. And of course, Jesus responds. In verse 31, Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs Peter and says to him, you have so little faith, why did you doubt me? Now remember, 
Compared to those disciples that were in the boat frightened who never walked in the water, Peter is a giant of faith, right? I mean, get the story right. Jesus does say to Peter, oh, you have little faith, but compared to the guys in the boat, Peter's the giant of faith. Peter's the guy that every one of us ought to be looking at and said, man, I want to be him someday. Because at least he walked on the water. So moments of doubt are still very much a part of anyone's life who has real faith. So when you have doubt, don't throw your faith out. It fits the picture. Let me give you a third thing, real faith. Real faith includes moments of saying dumb and stupid statements that sound really spiritual. Real faith has moments where we say things and think things that are absolutely wrong, but they sound really, really good. You ever been around Christians that think they have to have the right statement in the right moment all the time? Well, it happens to us all the time. So here's the story. Uh, Matthew 16 has one of these moments in Peter's life. Jesus is explaining to the disciples that he's going to be beaten and abused. He explains them that he's going to die. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And that's the Father's plan. The Father has a plan. And he says, the plan for me is I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to die a horrible death. And I'm going to be taken from you. That's the plan. Peter says, Jesus, yeah, come here. I want to talk to you. you know, I'm going to do you a favor here. I'm not going to talk to you in public. Because I've got to reprimand you here. But... I'll do it in private. Here's the story, verse 22. So Peter takes him aside and begins to reprimand him for saying such things. And he says, heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. So Peter does the right thing, pulls Jesus aside. I don't want to embarrass you publicly, but pulls him aside and says, listen, I'm preaching. I'm speaking with authority here. Heaven forbid. This is not going to happen to you. So you got to stop talking like this. It's not helping you. It's not helping you talk like this. It's not helping me to hear you talk. It's not helping anyone to have you talk like this. So you have to stop. Sounds really good. Sounds very spiritual. Sounds very encouraging. He speaks with absolute authority. Jesus responds in verse 23. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are saying things merely from a human point of view and not from God's point of view. Let me pause real quickly. If you're new to the faith, if you haven't never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, and you may not get this right away, if Jesus calls you Satan, that's not a good thing, just in case you were wondering. That is not what every Christian aspires to be, a, be in a position where God looks at you and says, get away from me, Satan. So, but that's exactly what happens. Now, for a person who speaks for a living, I can eat, I tell you, I am well aware how easily I can say something stupid. Let me rephrase that. As a husband, <laughs> as one who's married, I can tell you how easily I can say something stupid, usually on a Friday night before the weekend, right before vacation, in the middle of vacation. I mean, it's just amazing how well I can say a dumb thing at the worst possible time. I have this down flat. Now, on a spiritual basis, Christians love to say the right thing, and they like to get it right, meaning we love this thought that I can sound spiritual. We love the idea that we can speak in such ways where people will go, ooh, man, that was really good. And so we step into that arena. The Christian life is full of spiritual cliches. Let me give you some of the statements that we Christians use at time along the way. So you watch television, professional athlete. We just got on the Super Bowl. So a professional football player makes an incredible catch. A professional baseball player makes an incredible catch in the World Series that either clinches the game or protects the run from being scored, whatever. And later they interview him and the guy says this, well, it wasn't me, it was all God. Interviewer goes, man, great catch. It wasn't me, it was all God. And I'm sitting there thinking, I know what he means. But I got to be honest, buddy, it was a good catch, but it wasn't a God good catch. I mean, yeah, good catch, maybe great catch, but not God worthy. I mean, let's be honest. If God's going to make the catch, he's going to jump 68 feet in the air. He's going to catch it with one hand. And on the way down, he's going to feed 5,000 people fishing uh, uh, hot dogs and fries on the way down. Now that's a God catch. So when you say, it wasn't me, it's all God. It's like, no, it was you. And you did a really good job, but I understand what we're trying to say. We say things like that. Sounds really spiritual, but not quite right. I've heard Christians say this. If you just had enough faith to other, to other Christians, if you just had enough faith, you could be healed. If you just had enough faith, you get that, you'll get that job if you have enough faith to believe it. 
If you have enough faith, you'll find the husband you've always been looking for. If you have enough faith, you'll find the wife that you've always been looking for. Well, that sounds really, really spiritual, but not quite right. If you have enough faith, you can be healed. Well, someone should talk to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because he said, man, I prayed three times really, really hard that God would heal me, and I wasn't healed. Well, someone should say, you don't have enough faith, Paul. And by the way, I don't want to be the one to go tell the Apostle Paul he doesn't have enough faith. You go tell him because you've got to be a better man, better woman than I am. So we say things, but it sounds really good, but can't quite resonate when you look at it. Now, how about this one? This is an old one. Had a guy in the church that loved to say this. He probably heard it on TV somewhere. But his statement is, I remember one time he stood up in a meeting and he said, this, listen, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, man, that sounds really good. And everybody can say, yeah, problem is, it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. If God said it, it's settled, period. I mean, just so you know, God doesn't put out truth and then wait for you to weigh in before he says it's the done deal. God doesn't put truth out and hope that you agree. God says this is the truth. Well, that settles it, period. It doesn't matter really what you think about it. But we love those kind of statements because they sound so, so rich spiritually. This is one. Here's one. And this one, unfortunately, is kind of right, but it's still really stupid. People, someone be going through a hard time, a difficult moment, and some Christian comes along and says, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, that's true, but shut up. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, because we, we, we talk about this. I don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. There's lots of things in this life that make absolutely no sense. And I, I get the fact that someday when I'm standing with God, you know, a million miles up looking down, I'll get the whole picture and God can explain it, how it all ties together. But in reality, there's moments in our lives where nothing makes sense. Someone just loses a son or a daughter or a husband or a, or a wife, goes to just loses a job, whatever it might be. And some Christian comes along and says, well, don't worry. There's a reason. Everything happens for a reason. Just be quiet. But we somehow at times think that either A, we have to say something, and if we're going to say something, we might as well look spiritual about it. There are times when people of real faith say really bad things, and they just ought to be quiet. We use cliches or we say dumb things because oftentimes we just don't know what to say. We just don't understand it ourselves. And I would say to you, there's nothing wrong in those moments. It doesn't, it's not any reflection on your faith. In one of those moments, to look at someone and say, I haven't a clue why this is happening. No idea why God does some of the things that he does. That is not cheapening your faith. In fact, that speaks well of you to not try to be God and to say, I really don't know. Let me give you a fourth thing that real faith has. Real faith some of you are really going to like this because it's really going to affirm your faith. Real faith still has life's struggles. In fact, I'll be more specific. Real faith still has struggles with people and relationships. Now you say, well, Scott, why would you be so specific to say that real faith still has struggles with people and relationships? Well, it's really quite easy. So in your life, what causes you the most pain and heartache in your life? People, Right? Most pain comes from people. Most hurt comes from people. Most attacks come from people. And what is it about people that causes all these problems? Well, you have to live with them. That's what the problem is, is that uh, people live with us. And because of that, they cause hurt and pain. And so there's a lot of us that think that somehow that my faith, me placing my faith in Jesus Christ, will somehow take the struggles of my relationships away. And then we think to ourselves, what's wrong with us when I'm still battling with relationships? Because a person of faith shouldn't have those battles. Having faith does not make your marriage perfect. Having faith does not make your marriage trouble-free. People with real faith will go through divorces. People with real faith have problems with their kids, have problems with their coworkers, they struggle, will have problems getting along with other people. Now, if you think that having faith is going to take away all of your relationship issues and make all your relationships perfect, you couldn't be more wrong. Why? Why is that the case? Well, because even with faith, I'm still selfish. But let's not talk about me. Let's talk about you. But even with faith, you're still selfish. That's the issue. Even with faith, you're still self-centered. 
Even with faith, you're still self-driven. And the problem is this, even with your faith, if you're still self-centered, and with my faith, I'm still self-centered, man, we got a problem. And that's why relationships are still a struggle. And you can have relationship struggles, and you can have those battles, and still have rock-solid faith. Now, if you ever feel that sometimes in your life where you go, man, what's wrong with me? That I'm supposed to be a person of faith, and I'm still struggling with relationships. Well, if you ever feel that way, take heart. The disciples had this problem all the time. And you couldn't be any closer to Jesus than they were. You couldn't have much more faith than they had. But look at the storylines with them. So they're walking with Jesus, and nonstop, they're fighting with each other, arguing with each other, who's the greatest? Who does he love more, you think? I think he loves me more. I mean, I saw the way he looked at me. You didn't see it, but I saw the way he looked at me. He clearly, we connected at a level that you couldn't see. I mean, they had these debates all the time. Who does Jesus love the most? Who's going to get to sit next to Jesus? Kind of like my grandkids. So we go to dinner, dinner out, wherever it might be. My grandkids are completely enamored with my wife, Grandma. I mean, she goes over the top. She is incredible, Grandma. I get it. But I, gotta, I laugh. We'll go to a restaurant, and if there's five, six, or seven grandkids, there's only two chairs next to Grandma. And so the battle begins. And, you know, at first they try to call it, but they realize they can't call it anymore. And so this is a matter of who gets it first. You know, grandma gets her seat. And so heaven forbid that grandma will say, I'm going to wait and sit down until everyone else is seated. That's just chaos. You just got to pick a seat, Diane. And once you pick it, the rest of us will all fall in order. And I know where I'm sitting and it's not near grandma. I mean, it's like I'm over here somewhere closest to the person that gets the bill. That's the guy. I give it to him. So I, I laugh when I watch them and I read the story of the disciples. Who gets to sit next to Jesus? So here is Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, God himself with them, walking with them, teaching them, living with them. And here they are saying, I'm better than you are. They're walking with the Messiah and here they are going, I think he loves me more than you. Listen, friends, if you ever have relationship issues and you're battling with it, and you think your faith is weak, you know, granted, maybe you need to bolster the faith, but I have great encouragement when I realize, man, I'm them, they're me. Real faith can still struggle with relationships. Now, one time, Peter comes to Jesus with a relationship question. He has a question about how many times you have to forgive someone. Recall the story? He comes to Jesus, and he's asking a question, well, how many times do I have to forgive someone who keeps sinning against me? Let me tell you right now, that is a question every one of us have asked in our lives. Someone who's hurt us, someone who has harmed us, and we have forgiven them, that's one thing, but they do the same thing again. Or, here's the other storyline, you know, they, they sinned against me, and they never said they were sorry. Right? So, I don't have to forgive them, right, Jesus? Or, uh, they said they were sorry, but you know what, they did the same thing again. They did the same thing again, and the same thing again. So Peter comes and says to Jesus, I got a question. I got a relationship issue for you. So how many times do I have to forgive someone? Now, what's also interesting to me is this. Here, and it just makes me smile when I think about it. Who did Peter spend all of his time with? The disciples. So when he comes to complain about how many times he has to forgive, he's coming to complain because it's another disciple. It's one of these other guys. And they're not getting along. And apparently this other person's probably sinned against him. So he comes to Jesus and he says, so now how many times is it that I have to forgive someone? He has a question. So here's what Jesus says in verse 21. Then Peter came, to, starting with Peter, Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often shall I forgive someone who sins against me? And then he says, seven times. Now, just so you know, some quick background here. Why would he just come out of the blue and say seven times? Well, it wasn't out of the blue. If you know something, if you heard a sermon before, Jewish law had already established that anyone who claimed to have God in their life, they had to forgive three times. What's interesting is even at that day, they had this thought process that said, if you have God in your life, you ought to be better than the rest of the world. So everybody knows you should forgive at least once. But back then they even said, but if you've got God, forgiveness should be a part of your life. And so we're going to forgive three times. Why three? I don't know. They thought it was generous, I guess. Three times. So Peter wants to go ask Jesus a question, and so he already would know the law said three times. Why is he picking seven? Because he's probably had someone in his life, maybe the other disciples had already sinned against him eight times. And he's already been keeping track. I forgave you once, twice, three, four, five, six, seven, but I'm not doing eight. That's the thought process. 
Now again, remember, that was already established that three was the magic number. Peter's no fool, I'm thinking. So Peter says, you know, I've been walking with Jesus, and I've been listening to Jesus, and every time Jesus talks, he turns everything upside down. You know, we think we've gone, the, we've gone one mile, he says, go two. And so if I go and ask him this, and I'm reason he's asking because he's so frustrated with his other disciple probably, He's probably even hoping that the other disciple is listening to this because maybe the guy will get it straight now. So he's thinking to himself, if I go to Jesus and say, how many times should I forgive? Three. Jesus is already going to say, you know better than that. So what would Jesus do? He'll probably double it, which would be six. I'm going in at seven. (laughs) I'm safe with seven. So he comes, he puts to Jesus, say, how many times I have to forgive? And Jesus looks at him and ha- begins to have his answer. I can imagine Peter going, this ought to be good. Because he's expecting Jesus to say, well, three is what you're supposed to do. I was going to say six, but you've already gone to seven? Holy smokes, Peter. What an example of grace you are. As opposed, Jesus comes back and he says in verse 22, uh, not seven times, 70 times seven. Come again? <laughs> 70 times 7. So I'm thinking, Peter's thinking, I'm, uh, this guy's hurt me eight times now. I was gracious at four, five, six, seven. I'm not doing eight. And you come back with 70 times 7. Now, just so you know, a couple of things real quick. That term 70 times 7 wasn't taken out of the blue. That was actually a Jewish term. That they would use that term specifically to some number that you couldn't even imagine. They just put that number on it. And when if someone heard that number, they go, ooh, that's a lot. Now, for most of us, we hear this, chat, this verse, this story, and we think, why would Jesus say 70 times 7? And our thought is, it goes like this. Well, because he's trying to teach us that forgiveness is important. So we just keep forgiving. And I would say, that's a really good application. I'm not sure that's the real answer. So let me give you an illustration. My tape measure. Some of you saw that sitting there thinking, ah, oh, someone left that out there. Uh, no, I left, I brought it here on purpose. So I, so I, want, I was going to have, I was going to put on stage here a, a, a high jump bar, you know, from track and field, the high jump thing. I was going to put one up, but I didn't have access to get one. I used to have access because we have in our church a guy named Joe Ganello. Joe Ganello is uh, in the Vermont Hall of Fame for coaching track and field. On top of that, I think he holds most state records of any other track and field coach. And he's been in our church, but instead he decided to retire and he decided to winter in Florida, the big loser he is. So anyway, um, I say that because he's probably watching. So if he were here, I have the whole bar here, but he's not. So I got to use this. So let's say, so three times, let's go three feet. So here's three feet. Top of this, top of this, uh, this measure is three feet. So I look at you and I say, okay, there's a standard. You got to jump three feet. And most everybody would say, yeah, I can do three feet. Now, some of you would look and say, I used to be able to do three feet. <laughs> but even now you'd say three feet. I mean, that's just three feet. And most of us would say, I can do that. I might get hurt, but I can do it. Others of you are thinking, well, I couldn't really jump over, but I could, like, I could fall over it. And we would take that. We'd accept that. We'd say, you're in, three feet. But then Peter comes up with, three's not good enough. Let's go bigger. So let's go, we go seven feet. So I'm six feet. So here's seven feet. Can you do seven feet? And some of us would say, yeah, I can do seven feet. Or listen, I'll keep working until I get to seven feet. Now, you may not know this, but the world record is eight feet and a quarter inches. I mean, think about that. That's the, you know, eight foot ceilings in your house. Somebody could jump over the, root, the wall in your house. So for most of us, we'd go, boy, I don't I know. I tell you what I could do. Uh, some, uh, I, I could be on a team of people who would try. I could pray for the people who, would, who can do it. I'll, cook, I'll, I'll bake brownies for all the people who can do it. And for some of you, you would spend your whole lifetime practicing to get there because we told you seven feet's the standard. You'd say, okay, I'm in. So what does Jesus say? I don't have a tape measure big enough because Jesus said 490 feet. Just so you know, the peak of this room right here is 42 feet. Jesus says 490 feet. One and a half football fields. See, now I get the point here. The point of the story was not for Jesus to show you this and for people to go, 
Well, yeah, we really ought to forgive over and over again. The point of the story, if you can imagine, when Jesus said forgives 490 times, every person there jumping 490 feet, every person would say, impossible. See, that's the intent of the story. Three feet, anyone can do that. Seven, I'll keep trying. 490 feet, there's no way. It's absolutely impossible. I would have to have some kind of supernatural power. Boom, now you got it. I think Jesus is trying to relate a story to us where he says this. Now you've got it exactly. People with real faith know that they need God's power in their life, in relationships, and in general to get through the troubles and the problems. Real life people will still trip over the bar, but they trip over the bar knowing, God, I'm really going to need your help here. That's the storyline. Let me give you a fifth thing. Real faith has moments of failure that you'd never dream possible. Some of you, I expect, will think that your faith is incredibly weak or that you've completely lost your faith because you failed, you sinned, you fell in a way that you just can't even imagine that you did that. Now, if you know little else about Peter, most of us know the story about Peter and the fact that he actually denied even knowing Jesus. And he denied that, he denied knowing Jesus three times. And again, if you know the story, you know on top of all of that, he said what? I will never deny that I know Jesus. I will never abandon Jesus. In fact, Jesus said, yeah, you're going to abandon me. Peter says, them, maybe, me, never. Verse 33 of Matthew 26, Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. You ever have one of those I will never moments with God? Ever have one of those moments where you see someone else and and they fail and you look at them and you go, man, look at how miserably they failed. I would never do that. You see how they sin and you go, oh, that is just horrible. That's not me, God. I would never do that. Friends, if you ever think in your mind that there's some kind of sin in, your, in, the, in, in life, not in your life, but some kind of sin in life that you are not capable of committing. You just couldn't do it. Be very, very careful. Be very careful. Jesus said to Peter, yes, you will, Peter. You will abandon me. In fact, before the sun comes up, before the rooster crows, three different times you are going to say you don't even know me. The Bible goes on to tell the story they're in the courtyard area of the high priest. I have visited what we believe is that site in Israel. The Bible says they were in the courtyard of the high priest, and Jesus is in the beginning stages of this trial and accusing him. And Peter's out there warming himself by the fire. And for the third time, Peter actually says, I don't even know him. It's a dramatic moment. Here's what it says in Luke 22, verse 61. At that moment, right after Peter had just said, I don't even know him, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And suddenly the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. See, this is the guy who said never. This is the guy who expected so much more of himself than he was able to deliver. This is the guy who not only said I would never, he really believed that he was not capable of dropping the ball like everyone else dropped the ball. But what's a verse that's missed often in this story is a conversation that Jesus had with Peter actually before this moment, earlier in the evening. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. That's actually very important. See, people with real faith fail. And that does not mean they have no faith. In fact, Jesus in this moment says to Peter, Peter, you're going to abandon me. 
You, everyone, you, like you and everyone else going to abandon me. And I've been praying that your faith will not fail. Now, he doesn't say, I've been praying that your faith will not fail, which means you won't abandon me. He says, I'm praying that your faith will not fail so that after you fail, you'll come back. And when you come back, would you use your story to strengthen other people? So what do you do in life when you fail? What do you do in life when you let God down? What do you do in life when you just flat out sin? Well, quick bullet points from, from Peter. First, just look at Jesus. The story says at that moment where he failed that third time, they locked eyes. And friends, we don't have any confirmation of this, but I do not believe from everything we know about Jesus Christ, it was not a look of condemnation. Jesus didn't give Peter the old stink eye. What we believe is he looked at Peter and Peter saw a look of compassion and tenderness. When you fail him, look at him. Second thing, when you fail him, go ahead and weep. When you just fall flat on your face, go ahead and cry. Because the weeping means I'm not blaming, I'm not excusing, I'm not deflecting. Because see, we don't cry when we blame other people. It really only hits us in the heart when we own it ourselves. I would suggest to you that the tears of failure are usually the most honest tears that we ever shed. So go ahead and own it and have your moment and cry. And then look next. Sixth thing, turn back to him. You see, when I turn my back from God, that's when I sin. So Jesus says, listen, you're going to fail. So when you do, get back up and come back to me. And then this last one, last thing to do when you fail. I love this. He says, so after you fail, come back. And then what? Use your story to help somebody else. Why? Because you might be on the top right now at the same time someone else is failing. And so you use your story you use God's redemption story in your life to assist the person that are wallowing in pain right then and they're failing miserably. You help someone else. Let me give you our last one, one for the day. Last thing that real faith shows up and how, how it shows up in our lives. Real faith expects God to do things beyond your wildest dream in your life. Real faith has these moments where we go, God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I believe you're something great with me miracles beyond your wildest dreams in Acts chapter 2 Peter I won't read it now but Peter preaches his first big sermon Acts chapter 2 the result 3,000 people say yes to following Jesus and get baptized first big sermon 3,000 people unbelievable my first sermon I didn't have 3,000 people come up and get, say yes to Jesus there was probably only 100 people in the room on top of that they came up to me and said that was nice it was long in fact it was the longest we've ever heard for someone so young but it was really nice 3,000 people follow Jesus read the story of Peter on top of 3,000 people other miracles Peter sees a lame guy couldn't walk Peter says get up and walk the guy walks Peter's put in prison for preaching. In prison, he prays, God, free me. Chains fall off, door opened up, Peter walks out. Pretty incredible moment. One time, catch this, one time Peter's walking down the road, and it says that the people were trying to get to a place where even Peter's shadow from the sun would touch them and they'd be healed. His shadow. My shadow scares young children and makes dogs bark. Peter's shadow heals people. It's the same guy that said, I don't even know him. Does God still do miracles today, friends? He absolutely does. I have been a part of and I've witnessed people who have been healed, physically healed from sickness and disease. But the problem is for too many of us, you go, ooh, I want to see that. I'll tell you even greater miracles. I can show you a marriage where that couple thought, they, both, the couple, both members of that, that marriage looked at their marriage and said, absolutely hopeless. And years later, they love each other and are in love again. I can show you people who would say this, I will never be a follower of Jesus Christ. Who today, they can't imagine not having Jesus in their lives. It's an incredible miracle. Some of you live this miracle. I've heard people say, I would not be caught dead in church. Three years ago or five years ago, and here you are and you're still alive. The roof has not caved in on you. Hell has not frozen over. And here you are. That's a miracle. 
I've seen people who are quiet and shy, always kind of back in the corner, step up and with incredible confidence serve Jesus and tell others the story of what's happened in their lives. I've seen people who think they have nothing to give, and yet when they step up to serve, they serve with power and with confidence, and you sit there and say, man, how can they say they have nothing when look how powerfully everything they, they do, how it turns out. I've seen people who've had no money who have said, I'm going to give my portion. And I've watched them walk through life and have God meet their every single need. People with real faith expect God to do things beyond their wildest dreams and imagination. Final thing, people of real faith all have the same exact story as to how the faith walk begins. You realize that? Go back into the New Testament to the very first person that Jesus called. Go back and look at all the 12 disciples that he called. Go back and look at every single person from that point to this day who's a follower of Christ. And every story starts the same way. Jesus says, follow me. And Peter said, yes, I will. Here's the deal. Every person of real faith has in their life a moment when Jesus said, follow me, and you said yes. But too many of us leave it there. Well, I said yes once. No. Here's what I want to leave you with. Real faith, every single day, gets up in the morning and says, Jesus, I'm still giving you my yes. That's not something I did when I was five. That's not something I did when I was 20. That's something I did when I was 30. Today, I say yes to you. You do that, and you let Jesus Christ take care of the rest of your walk. Just start today and say, I give you my yes again today. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your truth taken from the life of Peter. Thank you for reminding me what real faith, faith looks like because I, oftentimes I find myself beating myself up. I find the evil one, Satan, trying to beat me up and I join right in, convincing myself that I have no faith, convincing myself that my faith is weak. I thank you for these truths that there are going to be moments where we're going to have doubts and I still have faith. There are going to be moments where I have great successful moments and right in the middle of that success, I'm going to have doubts. I still have faith. I'm going to have relationship problems, someone I don't get along with. My, my, my faith is still intact. Remind us of that truth. And remind us today as we end, every single day, we are to still be giving you our yes. For the person that first says yes in their first walk with you, to the person who then finds themselves at, at, at heaven's door on their deathbed, may you find in every one of us the attitude that says, today, Jesus. I give you my yes again. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.